Welcome to an exclusive editor-featured podcast here on Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Today's editor guest is my own editor, Ben Rosenthal of Catherine Teagan Books, where he is a senior editor. Ben acquires mostly middle grade and YA fiction with select nonfiction graphic novels and picture books. He's worked with such award-winning authors and illustrators as myself, Tiffany D. Jackson, Elliot Schrafer, Armand Baltazar, and Frank Morrison. Prior to joining Catherine Teagan, Ben was an acquisitions editor at Enslow Publishers, where he edited nonfiction and middle grade fiction and created a teen fiction imprint, Scarlet Voyage. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum, create beautiful books. Today's episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is sponsored by the new fiction podcast, City of Ghosts. I've had the chance to preview these episodes, and I think that you guys would really like it. It's a supernatural neo-noir mystery set in New York City with corrupt politicians, a dogged female detective, and a whole lot of ghosts. Episodes 1 and 2 premiere October 12th. So subscribe now to make sure you hear it when it drops. Can you hear me? It's 1999, New York City. Where am I? Oh, shut up! Bridget Lundy Payne stars in a new supernatural neo-noir audio drama. The voices, they're back. City of Ghosts. I understand this is beyond your usual scope. So two deaths and an attempted third. Must mean we're on to something big. Men like them have fortresses built around them. What good does sticking your neck out do, especially in this city? Still, just... Be careful. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Do be well, Eleanor. We're going to start with the basics. What you like working with? I know, obviously, middle grade and YA, but talk a little bit about what kinds of projects you really enjoy working with and anything in particular that you're looking for at the moment or you would like to see more of. I think about this a lot because I feel like my list as a whole is very eclectic because I have pretty wide-ranging tastes. I'm always worried if people feel like I'm too scatterbrained. For middle grade, I tend to like more fantastical adventures, epic stories where there are big worlds and sweeping adventures. My middle grade list is more fun, basically, whereas my YA list is more fun in a different kind of way. In YA, it tends to be a lot more contemporary, dealing with some very serious ideas and distinct perspectives. I really like giving teens books that they can really sink their teeth into and explore both individual ideas, like things that affect the human condition, but then things that are talking about society as a whole. I'm really looking for distinct point of views, people of color or people from marginalized backgrounds where 
their stories haven't been told as often or as certainly as often as we need. I was thinking about this yesterday because I had an author in the office, Justin Reynolds, whose book comes out next year, and he was talking about mm-hmm. his book, which is this YA novel that's kind of like Before I Fall meets Everything, Everything. It's like a time loop romance, which is sort of different, I guess, from my YA list, but it's amazing. It's about these two black characters. One of the things he was talking about, how he really wanted to show a black family and just have it be about these kids. Race always informs a character's point of view. So they're black characters, mm-hmm. but it's just a love story. I really like what he had to say about that. What I'm looking for now, <laughs> I have no idea, frankly. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, that way you're open, right? I feel totally full. I am kind of open because I need to be head over heels in love with something to even really feel like I can take it on. I'm having a hard time nailing down exactly what it is I'd like to see because I, in addition to like having a full list, I feel like I have a lot of different things. I have graphic novels, I have nonfiction, I have picture book biographies. I'm just looking for something with a really strong voice that can either make me laugh or make me interested. I realize that agents may not approach you with things they know you don't want, but what is something that you have seen too much of or something that just turns you off? Why fantasy? I mean, I don't read it, so that's part of it. It's something we publish a lot of at Harper, and we publish a lot of it very successfully. I just feel like we already have a lot of really great editors who are seeking it out and publishing it really well. It's a lot of brilliant authors. If I found something I was you know, enamored with, I, it's not like I would eliminate it, but I don't need to add that to our list mm-hmm. because we're already doing mm-hmm. it really well. It's a really crowded area. There's a lot of it, partially because there's a demand, clearly. Mm-hmm. Although recently I was having lunch with an agent and I said, you know, what would be kind of cool is I'd love like a really funny YA fantasy. I always feel like <laughs> YA fantasies are so dark and heavy and they don't tend to be funny. I don't know. I just think that that would be kind of refreshing for the space. Like a princess bride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like that would be pretty cool. Humor is the hardest thing to write. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, you do it pretty well, but yeah, it's hard. It is not easy. And it's funny, too, because even people who I'd say, like, are actually good at it, often still don't even, like, make me audibly laugh. No, (laughs) Um, it takes a lot. It definitely always something I look for because, it, as you're saying, it is so rare. I have a YA coming out in August called Heretics Anonymous that's really funny and made me audibly laugh. I'm excited about that. I mean, it's it's tough. Absolutely. Well, humor depends so much on delivery, facial cues, and body language, and you don't have that. You just have the text that you're putting in front of your reader, and I think that's a huge challenge for writers. And I think specifically when that is your niche, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life personally. If you are expected to deliver humor, you better be funny. Yeah, especially consistent humor, too. It's like some people can get like a couple good jokes in a book. Minor characters provide some like comedic relief, but like to make a book consistently funny chapter by chapter it's right. it's really difficult the book i mentioned heretics anonymous katie henry she's a playwright she starts her manuscripts with dialogue and her dialogue is just incredible you know not that you need to be a playwright to be funny obviously but it's certainly it's helped her because her comedic timing is just really good the dialogue feels very natural 
I mean, with film or TV, like how many truly like funny shows or movies are there? Like truly funny where you like laugh out loud. It's just, it's, it's a hard thing it's to do. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, I will say Barry on HBO. It's I haven't good. watched it yet. Yeah. Extraordinarily funny. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is funny. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is funny. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. And with reading too, which is why it's even harder. Like if you watch a show or like if you go to a movie and other people laugh, you laugh more. When I've gone to a comedy show, I laugh more even if the jokes aren't as funny. It's just something about right. like other people laughing really helps. But when you're reading, you're by yourself. So it has to be really funny for you to laugh because otherwise, I don't know, you just, uh, you don't do it. It has to be completely spontaneous. Yeah. it's, it's That's difficult. If I laugh when I'm alone in a room, I'm just like, oh, I just did that. <laughs> yeah, right. It feels weird. It's like, wait, I shouldn't have done that. Like, what, what right. what's happening here? I make broke any some sense. social more. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Make note, Ben likes funny stuff. I do. In order to write humor, you actually have to be funny. And not many people are actually funny, so. Can't be forced. There's got to be some kind of organic quality to it where it doesn't feel like I'm trying to make Absolutely. you laugh on purpose. I'm just making you laugh because I happen to be funny. I think a lot of people have a misconception of an editor's role. I'm often asked, especially by aspiring writers, if my editor ever makes me change things with my books. So can you talk a little bit about what an editor does with the manuscript and how they mm-hmm. work with the author? It's different author to author, depending on the style the author wants to work in. When I'm writing an edit letter to an author, what I'm trying to do is ask as many questions as possible because one of the reasons I'm doing that is because I'm trying to figure it out myself too. And so my goal is to kind of uh, look for the areas where I feel like we want to work on something, whether it be like this character is not quite working or there's a plot hole or it's not a strong enough through line, pose questions to help both of us think about it. I do make some suggestions, but I'm very comfortable with an author being like, no. I mean, you've certainly said no to me on many occasions. (laughs) (laughs) um, And sometimes we'll go back and forth because I really think something's important. But ultimately, like I want the author to feel they've come to the decision on their own to do this or not do this because it's that person's book. I want to try to get it to be as, as best as it can be as obviously the author does, but there comes a point where they need to be happy with what the words say and what the story's doing. So I always feel like that's my job is to try to get us and the author to really dig as deep as possible into the story, into the characters, into the plot, and make sure we're answering all the questions that we want the story to answer. When a reader reads something, obviously they want to be entertained, but a lot of it is, you know, they end up thinking and reflecting about something. And if something doesn't make sense, then that's always annoying. I write edit letters that way. Oftentimes after I send an edit letter, like we either set up a call to talk about it or just go back and forth on email. So I like to think of it as a dialogue because obviously there are many ways to do something, but can be the most effective way to do this. I never make anyone change anything. (laughs) Right, right. Mm. Well, and I think that's a huge misconception because I hear that a lot. I mean, often when I am doing events at libraries or if I'm at a festival and I'm doing a panel, 
so many times. Have you ever changed, had to change anything that your editor made you change that you wish you hadn't changed? And there's this assumption that that has in fact happened and they want to hear that story. And I'm like, no, (laughs) I was like, if anything, I buck my editor all the time. And it's just like, that's how it works. It's very much a collaboration. I think they have that concept of the box stopping with the editor and And I'm sure that there probably are some editors that operate that way, but I can't imagine that they would be terribly successful. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The closest thing you ever get to, like, or for me, where I would make someone change something is if I just feel really strongly about it, I'm going to present the argument for why I think this will be a problem if we don't make Mm -hmm. this change. Usually, we come to some kind of agreement about why the change should be made. But I wouldn't say that's making anyone do anything. If I can present a clear argument for why something should be some way and we agree to changing it, that's a collaborative process. If I'm imposing my will on the book, I feel like that's just a dangerous game. <laughs> um, Agreed. And so, Well, and I also think with my experience with you and with Sarah and with Ari, my other editors that I've had, has always been that if the editor sees something, most of the time, honestly, the editor's right. And the author is too like personally invested in a scene or a twist or a character quirk or whatever the case may be. And they're just not seeing the issues or why it's a problem. Most of the time, my experience has been that the editors will say, this isn't working. This is why I believe it's not working. And then they offer a solution. Usually I reject their solution, but I come up with my own. Right. And we parry back and forth until we have a solution that wasn't necessarily mine. It wasn't necessarily yours. But the initial issue of this wasn't working for me, most of the time... I'll come around to seeing it, not always, but a lot of the time. And usually we come to a fix that is a result of like mutual brainstorming. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's all. That's the goal is to make sure you can get to a place where the change feels very organic to what you wanted it to be. Sometimes it isn't what the editor suggests and it isn't exactly what you suggest, but it's something in the middle, somewhere on the spectrum of whatever that change is going to be. I think that works pretty well. Trust is such a big part of it. The more you can get on the same page as author and editor, usually the better you can work together. Vellum. It just works. Best-selling indie author Alex Lydell, whose book Enemy Contact, an enemies-to-lovers romantic suspense, hit number 25 in the Amazon paid Kindle store, has this to say about Vellum. There are always a ton of hang-ups in the publishing process, from the printer running out of ink at just the wrong moment to Amazon rejecting margins. But Vellum has been one program I can depend on. It formats my manuscripts quickly, professionally, and most importantly, in a way that never gets rejected by any online retailers. Visit www.trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. That's trivellum.com forward slash pants. Vellum. It just works. 
PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 50, PubSite gives you the tools to build, design, and update your website pain-free. Build your site with a 14-day free trial. PubSite is easy to use. You can set up a simple site within a couple of hours, and when you're ready, enhance with features like a blog, photo gallery, book tour calendar, mailing list sign-up, social media feeds, and more. Too busy to build your own site? Have a PubSite expert build your site for a small fee. PubSite is used by authors such as Tom Clancy, Robin Cook, and Janet Daly. Visit PubSite.com to get started now. As a former librarian, people often told me they were jealous of my job because I got to sit around and read all day, which was totally not the case. I'm sure that you do a lot of reading as part of your job, but it's only a single element. I know often you tell me that you read on the train to and from work. So what is your day like at the office? How much reading is actually done at the office? Take us through the day of an editor, basically. I don't get to do a lot of reading at work. The morning is usually spent reading submissions on my phone because I I get motion sick. So I have found that my phone is actually the best way to combat that on the train. The day obviously depends. There's usually some like amalgamation of meetings and emails, uh, which is Mm -hmm. a lot of the day, frankly. You know, meetings with design to talk about covers or meetings with marketing, meetings with publicity. Think of it as kind of like a film director because you're at the center of everything and you're communicating. Like we talk to everyone. So we talk to managing ed, you know, the copy editors. Uh, We talk to production. We talk to design. We talk to marketing, publicity, sales. Within the company, we're at the center of the project. You kind of need to be aware of every moving piece so that we can communicate that to the author and so that the author can communicate that to us. I mean, a huge part of the job is communication, verbal or written. I spend so much of my day talking to people. It probably is not what you'd imagine, I guess, for an editor, because it seems kind of like a sit-at-your-desk, reclusive kind of job, I guess. And certainly there are parts of it like that, but it is amazing how much you spend your time talking or writing to people Mm -hmm. lots of take home i'd imagine then yeah so most of the editing i do is either in the evenings on the weekends or i work from home one day a week and that is a very important day for me i'll be writing while i'm traveling i'll be promoting one book and writing another and people will say how do you do that how can you work like that when you're on the road and you're constantly moving This is actually the best time for me to work because I have no other duties. Like I can turn on the outside persona where I go and I'm doing the promotion, but I don't have to clean a house. I don't have to make any food. I don't have to mow a yard. Everything is taken care of for me. I can literally pick up a phone and have food brought to me. I'm being waited on hand and foot, like in a hotel. This is the perfect time to write. When I'm on an airplane... For four to six hours, people aren't talking to each other. This is the perfect time to write. This is the perfect time to edit. For me, when I'm traveling, I actually find that to be some of my most 
productive times because I don't have other demands on my time other than email. Email is always, I mean, I answered email for two, two and a half hours every day. So I can imagine that yours is even worse. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of email. One of the things I've been doing the last few months is when I do work at home, I get up my normal time and I get to this coffee shop in our town by like 630. And by 930, I feel like I've done a full day's work because Mm -hmm. it's just so rare to get like three hours of totally uninterrupted. And I leave feeling like I've conquered the world because I found much I've accomplished in such a short amount of time. I was never a believer in like people who went to coffee shops to work. I always felt kind of like <laughs> performative to me, I guess. Sure. Um, but now I'm taking that back because it has really worked. One time in my life, I worked in a coffee shop. I was on the road and I was with a fellow author. I was with Liz Coley and she always works in coffee shops. And we had three hours downtime in between appearances and we were already out of our hotel. We'd checked out. She's like, well, we'll just find a coffee shop inside. I was like, oh, God. And then I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. I got my coffee and my little donut or whatever, and we sat down, and by God, I kicked out a short story. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh this works. Yeah, <laughs> That's why you should never judge anything until you've done it. Nope. I learned my lesson. People outside of publishing are always surprised when I tell them it takes 18 months to two years for a book mm. to go from contracts to publish. They are just shocked. They're like, well, isn't it finished? And I'm just like... Oh, you don't understand. So what's the lifetime of a manuscript like from when it crosses your desk to publication day? The acquisition process at Harper is pretty formal. When I get a submission that I love, I'll just send it to my boss, Catherine Teagan. And assuming she likes it, I bring it to an acquisitions meeting. And that's where different people from the heads of the various departments are there and they've reviewed the material and we have a conversation about it. And depending on what the situation is, if I end up getting the book, it could be like a long time before you actually work on it Mm -hmm. because you're balancing your own list. You're balancing the list at large. Well, we think about our own like imprint list and then we think about the Harper children's list as a whole. Other kinds of factors you might think about for a book, like if you're doing a series that like would really have great Halloween promotion. Like, all right, well, that mm-hmm. has to be on this particular season. Yeah, it could be three or four or five months before you actually sit down to edit the book. You know, the editorial process is a couple months, sometimes three months, depends how much work needs to be done. But that's just, you know, the back and forth we were talking about already. And then once a manuscript is done, you submit it to copy editing, there's the copy editing stage. And all while this is happening, like while we're working on it, having the cover designed and talking about that, you launch the book, which is like this big meeting where editors get to present their titles to the whole division. Author gets to review the first pass pages, kind of get your your last look at the designed interior. Book is proofread and marketing publicity are working on their plans and you have galleys made and those get sent out and yeah it's a long road there's a lot that goes into it sales they go on their sales calls i mean that's part of the reason there's so much lead time is that sales needs time to sell into the stores i believe publishing still a little bit too slow <laughs> um mm-hmm. feels like we could be a little bit quicker than we are now because it is such an old business 
it still functions in a lot of ways the way it used to. And there's something kind of nice about that, but there's also something a bit frustrating about it because change is good, even if it's hard. I'd say two years is a long time to go from contract to publication, but uh, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of necessary steps that help get a traditionally published book into the right hands. And Mm -hmm. the way we're currently set up requires a lot of time. How many people would you say ballpark are involved in an individual title and the promotion of it from the editor down to the sales team? It's a good question. I mean, it's a lot. (laughs) Editor, copy editor, managing editor, production editor, designer, and then often our design team is fantastic and they usually find outside artists. A lot of times it's outside artists that they work with. So you have potentially one or two or three design people one marketing director, but usually they're helped by their whole team. You have a publicist, but the sales team is because you have your independent bookstore sales reps and they're kind of region by region. And then you've got BNN sales rep and your Amazon sales rep and your books a million sales rep and your fall at Ingram Baker and Taylor sales rep. And then you've got school and library marketing And so, yeah, there's a lot of hands on your book at various times. One of the reasons it does take so long is because we take a lot of care in making sure we publish the best possible book or product because so much goes into it. We want the art to look right. We want, obviously, the story to work right and takes a lot of time. I think it's worth it. As a writer, I actually enjoy in some ways, that length of time, because by the time my book is out, I am somewhat emotionally recovered from the book, if that makes sense. I'm no longer emotionally attached to it. It's not my brand new baby. It's got its own legs now. It can go walk itself out into the world. So I'm able to read reviews, professional reviews, and I'm able to process things like that a little differently than when it's very, very fresh to you. It's like a wound in a lot of ways. It's got to close a little bit. Right, right. And I kind of agree with that because sometimes when a book comes out, if I'm at at an event and I hear the author reading it, or I don't know if I happen to just like look at it myself, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that part. (laughs) I I have to like almost dig in again. And it's kind of nice too, because it's just like, oh man, this, I forgot about this. This is, this is pretty awesome. This is exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I feel the same way. Well, you know, I wrote bulk of a madness, so discreet, very fast in like three weeks. And I picked it up one time at a conference where I was on a panel and it was a big panel. There were like 10 or 12 people on the panel. So it would take a long time for things to come back around to me. And I happen to have madness in my lap. So I just kind of opened it and I was looking at it and I would read something and be like, huh, that's pretty good, you know, and just be (laughs) kind of taken aback and be like, oh, I completely forget writing that. I forgot that that happened. It's kind of fun to rediscover something that you yourself wrote. Yeah, well, and there's a kind of fatigue when you work on something for so long. You're so deep into it trying to make it as good as it can be. It's hard. I mean, it's hard work. Obviously, if you don't love the work, you probably wouldn't do it. Right. But just because you love something doesn't mean it's, it isn't hard. Right. So it's that distance is helpful because it can kind of reignite the joy, allow you to 
take some pleasure in it. I mean, that's even hard still. Like, uh, it's hard sometimes to not be like, oh, we should have done that. Or, oh, uh, I don't do readings very often because of the fact that I'll open up a, one of my books and I'll find a section and I'll start reading it. And most of the time, I'm actually editing it as I read it. People would not be able to follow along because <laughs> right. I'm changing words. Yeah. I'm dropping things. I'm skipping paragraphs. Like, I don't need, why did I leave that paragraph in there? That's dumb, you know? Right. And, and so yeah. people, aspiring writers ask me all the time, how do you know when a book is finished? And it's like, it's never finished. I could read a finished book of mine right now. I'd find things to change. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's affected the way I read too, in general. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I was having this conversation just the other day with Catherine and another editor at Harper talking about how reading for pleasure has become a challenge. I've had that ha- really, I've fallen into that of late, especially. I like to read like middle grade and YA because obviously I like it. That's why I work on it. But also because I like to just see what other people are mm-hmm. doing and read those books for fun, but also just to get a sense of, you know, why it's working or why people love it so much. When I read it, I can't help but like kind of evaluate Mm -hmm. it. That's just annoying. I'm like getting really annoyed with myself doing that because it's like, I just want to read this for enjoyment's sake and kind of having a hard time. Yeah, you can't anymore. And I actually had the same conversation with Adrian when I talked with her because I have that experience as a writer. Adrian has that experience from the point of view of an agent because she'll be reading something and she said she'll even think, I wouldn't have sold it to that house. I would have taken it to this house. I think that editor would have done a better job. As a writer, when I'm reading it, I'll catch echoes. That's my big thing. I'll be like, you just use that word. Why are you using that word again? (laughs) You're better than that, you know? And then I'll always be just dialogue. I'm pulling apart dialogue. I'm assessing. I'm looking at pacing. I'm not just reading the book. A book has to be extraordinary to actually transport me at this point because I am no longer just a reader. And it is a very frustrating thing because this is one of my hobbies. This is something that I do for fun. This is a huge element of who I am. And it has been like contaminated in some ways by work. Oh, it's so true. So true. One of our editorial assistants she's a big comics and like graphic novel fan and i acquired a graphic novel like a year ago or something and i read them a lot as a kid well i read comics mm-hmm. a lot as a kid i'd been away from them for a long time and i i really like them and i you know read them sporadically but like was like all right i gotta i really gotta read this because i i want to really kind of understand the craft of mm-hmm. graphic novel she was like oh well you should read mm-hmm. saga yeah I think it's mm-hmm. incredible. It's pretty high sci-fi fantasy, which isn't necessarily my thing, but it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really funny. I found myself watching more TV than reading because it's not a medium I can really pick apart because I don't know anything about it. And I think, too, I just get fatigued from reading in general. I do it so much for work that when I get home... I mean, there are times where I really do want to read a book. There's something I'm excited to read, but I'm usually so tired that I'll read like 10 pages and I'll go to sleep. Well, and I (laughs) actually get like uh, migraines. Now I'm at this point in my life. Well, I started getting them in college because I had to read so much, but I just get eye strain and I get migraines from reading too much. And that's one of the reasons why whenever I'm asked for a blurb, I always ask for an arc or a bound galley instead of an ebook, because when I am scrolling and I'm tracking with my eyes and I've got the backlight, I'll go to migraine 
within an hour if I'm not super careful. Even the paper white and all the things that Kindle has tried to do to make it better for your eyes too, I can't do it. Yeah, and because I read on my phone and the print is pretty small, I don't really like to read on my Kindle either. But yeah, when I read at home, it's yeah, always a, a book. What about audiobooks? Yeah. Have you tried um, audio for pleasure? Yeah, I used to do that a lot, actually. I found that, not realize I was, yeah. had stopped paying attention. And so I would have to go, like, either go back or just be like, all right, well, I yes. missed something. And hopefully it won't be a big enough deal for me to, like, mm-hmm. not know what's going on. So I had, like, an Audible account for a while. You know, I, I did enjoy it, but it felt like a chore. It became a chore to me because, like, all right, well, I got to I gotta listen right. to this book in a month. Because then I get my next credit. Do I want a long book? Because then I got to really make sure I yep. <laughs> listen to the whole thing. And if I do a short book, is that like really worth the credit? Oh, then? Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. It became annoying. I really like podcasts and that's much easier. So canceled my mm-hmm. account. I mean, I like audiobooks and the medium I kind of enjoy, but I, I want it to be mm-hmm. an enjoyable experience. So once it started feeling like, a chore. I was like, yeah, this doesn't, this is stupid. I will say the one thing with audiobooks that happens to me is that I will, you're talking about zoning out. If I'm on a plane, I'll fall asleep. When I'm driving, obviously I can't fall yeah. asleep, but when yeah. I am on a plane, I will fall asleep and I will wake up. And one time I, I don't remember what book I was listening to, but I had fallen asleep and I woke up and I looked at my phone and I had been asleep for about half an hour. And I didn't really miss anything. And I was like, oh, this pacing is pretty off. <laughs> You're judging it again, right? It is no, difficult to still be able to participate in a hobby that you enjoy when it's your job as well. So, yeah, I mean, ups and downs of truly loving your job, I guess. I was listening to Jared Carmichael, the comedian. He was asked, what comedians do you like or, like, what are you watching? And he was saying, like, nothing really wasn't saying like that there's no one funny it's similar to the kind of what we're talking about like that's not what he right. gets his enjoyment out of he's evaluating it and i feel like anytime you're really immersed in something so deeply and it's the work you do and it's not just the work you do but it's your passion like you really care about it you really want what you're making to mean something mean something to kids to really have an impact on them it becomes such a big part of your life that doing that thing for pleasure obviously is going to become a little bit more difficult because you're just so immersed so you can't just turn off that part of your brain and be like no 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 this is remember this is for fun right now writer writer pants on fire is produced by mindy mcginnis music by jack corbel don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. <laughs>